Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Seth. I am one of the teaching pastors on staff, and I get to open up this series and teach you the book of Revelation. Revelation is for uh, a lot of reasons, one of the most avoided books in the Bible. John Calvin, uh, the reformer a couple hundred years ago, he wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except for this one because it's a hard code to crack. But I want you to know that I've been working hard, and I cracked the code, and I'm excited to... (laughs) Share with you all, they actually got a picture of me in my office this week. Here it is. I figured it out. So I'm going to share with you the secret. Um, buckle up. Here we go. Uh, but in all seriousness, today, uh, this morning is going to be kind of two sermons. One, I'm going to just introduce the whole book, set some uh, a big picture, ground rules, how we're hoping to do this. And part two is I'm going to teach Revelation chapter one. So that's where we're going to go, kind of part A, part B of this, two mini sermons, bonus content. Uh, you are welcome. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump right in. First, like, what is the book of Revelation. Uh, First of all, it is not Revelations. So if any of you have a tattoo that says like Revelations 20 verse whatever, got to get that corrected because that's not what it is. The book is called The Revelation because it actually is in fact is a series of images. It's a series of uh, one picture given to John. It's a revelation. He sees this, he sees this, he sees this. And so when it comes to interpreting the book, it's not really the matter of like what happens next in world history, but rather what did John see next and how does his, how does his mind taken by the Spirit to see various things. And these, these images are actually the core part of the book. That's why we don't like the book is because images are more difficult to access and interpret than just pure text. And that's part of the genre that's called apocalypse, which is made point three, that this is part of the genre of this book is that it is an apocalypse, which we see in one verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation there in Greek is apocalypsis or, or apocalypse, which means the unveiling or the, the, the showing or the curtain being pulled back. Think like Wizard of Oz, man behind the curtain, like this is what's really going on. Uh, for example, like just recently I thought I had no scorpion problem at my house, but then I got the black light and all of a sudden I have scorpion problems at my house, right? There's, I could not see what was there. Boom, black light, I see what is there. And Revelation is saying, you don't see all that's going on. Here you go. Let me show you what's really going on behind the curtain of world history. It is an unveiling, a revealing. And that is usually done through poetic images that we're meant to enter into and be moved by. Like I remember as a kid reading the letters of Paul or the Gospels and really liking it because it was clear. He's just saying what is true and I'm just reading the facts. And then I'd read the poetic stuff and think, what is this nonsense? How are you supposed to, like poetry, even like as as an adult, I'm like, who has time for poetry? Just tell me the truth. Tell me the facts. Like if, if some, like I feel like we're pretty pragmatic as a society. Just give me the, shoot me straight. Give me the facts. Tell me what you want me to think. Tell me what, but, but the reality is that especially in churches like ours, we're so like underdeveloped emotionally and imagination wise. We hate the poetry, but that we actually need it the more because the images are caused to move us from the heart and stir our affection. See, in John's perspective, Even when it comes to understanding the end times, our problem is not that we lack information, but our biggest problem is that we love wrongly. We think if I just had more information, then I wouldn't struggle with sin, or if I just got all the information, then I wouldn't be worried about the future. If I just got all the right facts and figures, then I would be more faithful. And John is saying, actually, no, you probably have plenty of information. Probably your big problem is that you love the wrong things and love wrongly. This is core to John's argument and the way he understands humanity. In a previous book John wrote, 
John, in John 3, 19, he says this, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. Our biggest problem, the reason that we are slow to become Christians is we love darkness and the reason that after we are Christians we still sin is because we love darkness. And so John is writing Revelation to help us love the right things, have our affections rightly ordered. And so this apocalyptic image-based dramatic language is part of that tool. Like when I was in high school, I was dating this girl and I wanted to marry her. I was super in love. She came to my house and broke up with me. And I said things like, my heart is broken. My life is over. I looked her in the eye, brought up her contact on my phone, scrolled down to her contact, delete it and said, have a nice life. And I shut it and I walked inside, right? So she's my wife now, so it's okay. She, she came around. She came around, but this, uh, she, this, this language of my heart is broken, my life is over, would you look at a teenager and say, actually, you're lying, your heart's not broken, uh, it's actually not factually accurate to say your heart, you know, like that would, that's a great way to never have your teenager talk to you again, but that's like the, you're saying a true thing in a dramatic way to really make a point that is real, and that's, that's part of the images that are doing this, is they're called to like stir us drag us, arrest us, cause us to behold Jesus, because until we see him as more lovely than darkness, we will keep pursuing darkness. And so that is part of the function of the apocalyptic literature. It is unveiling, it is revealing, it is causing our imaginations to be taken captive, and it's showing us the beauty of what's really going on and how Christ is better than this thing. And these core images of apocalypse, like so the centerpiece of this book is actually Revelation 12, I think, um, and the main image that's given here is there's this woman and the dragon, and the woman is giving birth, and I think the best way to understand that is that that woman is both Mary, the mother of God, and it is the church who's giving birth to Christians, and then the dragon comes and is trying to kill all the offspring of the woman, and it says in Revelation 12, 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God. That if you keep the commandments of God, you're to understand yourself as the offspring of this woman, and you're to understand yourself as being under attack from a dragon. Now, where's the dragon? Like, is this a real dragon? Do we like have to believe in real dragons now? No, the point is you are really under attack and it's meant to make you be provoked to defensiveness, to be on guard. Stop believing you're in neutral territory. You are behind enemy lines. Recognize someone's out to get you. There really is a war. And this idea of being comfortly lulled into passivity with the world is a danger. And John's writing us to get us riled up, to raise our awareness and say you're under attack. And the second core image we see in the book of Revelation is actually towards the end. It's in Revelation 17, where it's talking about Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon the Great is this image, this picture of human society as organized in itself in opposition to the Lord. So it's human society apart from God. The organization, it comes from the book of Genesis where Babel, Tower of Babel, actually Babel in Greek is Babylon, that this, this project to build the world apart from God is Babylon. It says Babylon the Great is fallen and John describes Babylon the Great as a whore, a prostitute, or a harlot, depending on your translation. That she's gonna offer you comfort and she's gonna steal your soul. She's gonna seduce you and make you get comfortable in the world. And so you are under attack, church, and the main means of the attack is seduction through falling in love with power, sex, and money. And these images take us captive 
rile us up, provoke us, and cause us to sober up to the reality of what's going on in the world. And so you might be like me, going all this poetry, all this image, just give me the facts. And John is saying, you don't need the facts. You need affections stirred, and you need to be aroused unto sobriety. And these pictures are meant to take hold of us and bring us and help us see. So this is an apocalypse, and it's going to unveil the world to a second or fourth. It's prophecy. You see this in 1-3. Blessed one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, which as a side note, uh, it's just a good thing to know here that the blessing promised at the beginning of Revelation is blessed are those who read aloud the prophecy and those who hear it and those who obey it. It is good news for us that it is not those who fully understand all the details are blessed, but that we would be moved and obey, not that we would grasp every little detail. So if you're coming to this and feeling frustrated that you don't understand all the stuff, that's okay. The blessing's not tied to understanding all the stuff. The blessing is tied to hearing and then obeying as God is moving us and calling us to faithfulness. But this is a prophecy. The prophets could be understood as lawyers, covenant litigators. They're looking at us and saying, here's where you're faithful, here's where you're unfaithful. This is calling us to the carpet, calling us to task, saying, you want to be close to the Lord Jesus, but yet you do this, and it's exposing our hypocrisy. It's calling us to the closer way, that the point of this book is that we should be cut, we should be motivated, we should be spurred unto faithfulness. And the fifth piece of this is that it is a letter. This is important for us for a couple of reasons. One, John says, uh, the the Lord speaks and says, hear what I say and write it down and put it in a book and send it to these people. So it is a letter written by John, moved by the Spirit, sent to uh, these churches. And so there was an original audience, there were original Hears, that this letter was written for us, for our benefit, for our building up, but was not written to us. Not only that, but this book is not a code that we are meant to crack in a way that people in the first century could not crack. The early hearers would have heard it and been moved and would have obeyed it and they would have understood it. And the best way for us to interpret this book is try to enter into the hearts and minds of those Christians in the first century who were receiving this book and understanding that the church was not going, I sure do hope that someone from Redemption Gateway 2,000 years from now can come along and finally tell us what this means. No, this church was written and was understandable and accessible to people in the first century. So we cannot read our current day situation into the book and say this is that. Earthquake in Morocco, there it is, verse chapter 14. Virus, there it is, chapter 12. Like we can't, we cannot do that. That is called egocentrism. That's a self-centered reading of the text. That's also called eisegesis. It's reading my current experience into the text. Rather, we want to read it like the first hearers and be moved and be implicated and submit to it as such. So it is a letter with people and we are, it's written for us, but not to us. And so I want to therefore kind of pause and say, here's, here's some of my hope for us as one of your pastors, as we read the Revelation, as we read this Revelation of John, how would we go about this? How would we sit under this? How we work through this? So how are we going to read uh, Revelation? Uh, number one, not as a warning about persecution, but rather as a warning about the temptation to sell out in order to avoid persecution. Revelation throughout the New Testament is an assumption. They hated me, they will hate you. And so John's not writing this saying, hey, look out, persecution's coming, because the New Testament has been saying that for a long time. He's not just re- being redundant. for the sake of it. He's saying, you are seducible. You can be brought into a place, lulled into comfort as you accumulate assets and have, enjoy the privileges and the blessings of society. You can become overly compliant for the sake of the approval of your peers, 
and just wanting a good, comfortable life. It's not just through like going crazy into sexual immorality, but it's like through love of money and the accumulation of power. Like you're, and so we as a church must see that we are tempted to sell out for the sake of the approval of the world. It's preparing us, not just helping us do this thing. Next one is uh, uh, literally exposing that. It's, it's, it's a tool. It is not a tool for predicting the future, but a tool for preparing for the future. This is not a code trying to crack the stars aligning. This is John saying, here's what's happening, and here's what you need to know about what's happening. Here's what's always happening, and here's what's will going to happen. And you need to prepare your hearts for the difficulty. And we're trying to make sure our hearts, our souls, our minds are fixed on the Lord Jesus, that we're mindful of the temptations coming forward. And John is not trying to help us predict the future, but help us prepare for the future. Uh, number three, not looking anxiously for an immediate return, but soberly for an imminent return. Right, like I, so both at my previous church, um, when the end timesy stuff would come up, like more than two times, I we saw someone have psychotic, psychotic, not psychotic, psychotic breaks because there's like four moons that are red in a row, and that meant something's coming. And they sold all their investments and kind of developed like because they're so anxious, preoccupied about trying to predict the future based on what's going on in there. Likewise, I have a, I have a pastor friend who when he was a child, um, his parents were convinced that Jesus was coming back very soon. And so they could avoid uh, their dog having to go through the difficulty of the tribulation, they put their dog down. So this is what I'm calling about like an anxious immediacy. Like the, the rest of the Bible talks about providing inheritance for your kids. It talks about investing in, in society and building houses and planting trees and having grandkids. And, and like this is, like we're not called to just divest of the world and pretend like our like we're we're trying to build a church here and we have a mortgage. Is that is that unfaithful? Because Christ is coming back soon. Absolutely not. So it's sober uh, imminence, meaning any time now Jesus can come back. But it's not anxiously imminent, meaning he's coming back t- tomorrow per se. Probably he'll come back after we die, but also he can come back anytime soon. And so. Anytime Jesus can come back, but we're not going to get all weird and anxious about the next, like, is it going to be, you're going to read the news and go, oh, is it, that's not what's going on here. We're not trying to read the news into this. And then fourth, uh, not with haughtiness, overestimating our interpretations, but with humility, honor, and hope as we look to Jesus in the text. Now, uh, some of you might think that I've never been wrong about anything in my whole life, you know, and I just want to tell you, Sorry, that's almost true, but not quite. No, I, the, uh, as, as we are trying to interpret and apply this, like our teaching team is going to do work and we're going to do our best to un- unfold, unpack, and apply this to our lives. But I want you to know that these are images that are meant to be interpreted and experienced, and we're not going to get it right all the time. I know that, you know that. So let's not get weird and fussy about it, all right? So um, that being said, like we are going to have views. We are going to have perspectives. We are going to try to teach. And I want to be clear, like where we're certain, where we're certain, where we're 50-50, and where we have no idea, where we have no idea, right? And so we're trying to uh, submit to this as a church. And so what I don't want is some of you have really strong end times views. Some of you have virtually no end times views. And both of those are okay. But I want to say that we are not going to do this kind of fussy, argumentative, upset back and forth about this, right? You, you might disagree with 
a, a, a point of interpretation, and that is totally okay, right? So when I say, like, how are we going to do this, I want us to do this like the early church. So um, just so you know, like, my perspective on how to interpret this book, as much as possible, is shaped by the earliest readers as is possible. So John wrote this, and he discipled this guy named Polycarp, kind of an unfortunate name, and Polycarp then discipled a guy named Irenaeus, and then Irenaeus was contemporaries with this guy named Justin. Justin got killed for the faith. They call him Justin Martyr. And so uh, Irenaeus and Justin wrote a lot about how to interpret this. And so as much as possible, the early readers, I think, had the best shot at reading it right. And so, but Justin, even he, had this perspective on how to interpret the end times. He said this, I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem. So he's talking about how he interprets, especially the end part of this book. Uh, however, many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. And I think have a view, hold it with humility. That's what he's modeling for us is he has a clear interpretation. And he's holding it with humility. He's saying other, and this is especially in this time where they're trying to define what is orthodoxy and what is heresy. And even in the midst of this, like really like where there are heretics who are being pushed out, um, jo- Justin is saying, we are not going to split the church over how to interpret the book of Revelation, the end times. We're actually going to hold firm to this, but other people who are really, really good Christians and their brothers and sisters in the church, they disagree and that's okay. And so I want us as a church to interpret Revelation like that. We don't want people being like fussy or disruptive in small groups, trying to insisting on, and we're not doing that. Uh, but it's also not going to be just like a who cares, doesn't really matter, because it does matter. So we're going to hold our views, but hold them with, without haughtiness, all right? So that uh, brings me to this next point is some of you have a lot of burning questions about the book of Revelation. Some of you will develop questions as we go. Uh, I know that some of you have sat under like Sunday school teaching where you go through Revelation every single Sunday for like six years. We're doing this in 12 weeks. We're not going to hit that level of detail, so just just so you know. But we'd like to answer as many questions as you have. And so this QR code takes you to a form where you can plug in your questions and send them to us. Um, we, we'll probably do like a Revelation Q&A night for those of you who want to do a deeper dive on end times, um, eschatology, study the last things. Um, Luke and I will do a couple podcasts on it. We already, already have done a couple. So um, QR code this, save it. We'll uh, put it in a weekly email, I'm sure, at some point. Um, but just so you have a place to send your question and land it, we'll do some FAQs and get that going. Because uh, Time's limited on Sundays, but we want to hit those however we can, and that's the plan there. Uh, also, we, Luke and I do a podcast called King and Culture. So uh, if you search that on uh, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, we've done probably seven or eight episodes on End Times over the last couple of years. We've done one more recently that will come out this Thursday, specifically for this sermon series, and we'll probably do some Q&A stuff on that podcast. And so those of you who want to kind of uh, get down into the weeds on stuff, this, this is probably where we're going to do that, all right? So check that out, follow it, and we'll, we'll go that direction. Uh, that being said, I want you to know, like, just preaching on Sundays is a keystone of our formation, uh, but some of you are going to want to go deeper, and so I have some recommendations on how to get the most out of this. Um, number one, just read the book. Read, read it all the way through, right? Uh, you can get an Audible app, you know, listen to it. It takes a little while, but 
but you can read it, study it, familiarize yourself with it, make points of what helps or what's confusing. Uh, so just read the book. Number two, read Daniel and Ezekiel. Uh, those are books with language similar, and uh, John quotes from them extensively or alludes to them extensively. So kind of seeing Old Testament, New Testament, how's it fit together, be good to do that. Uh, number three, you book club people, you should read That Hideous Strength or The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis instead of reading the latest Colin Hoover Trash. You could read this and have a great actual formative um, experience. So that hideous strength is about 400 pages. It is a romance novel in case nobody cared until I just said that. There's a husband and wife and they like each other. They don't like each other. They like each other. So spoiler alert on that. Um, Last Battle is a, a, a book that's written for children, but as I found ex- incredibly helpful. It's about an ape who dresses up a donkey in an Aslan fake lion thing and prays him around telling everyone he's a real Aslan. It's kind of like real anti-Christ end times people getting duped by the fake thing. So if you have a book club or, you know, schedule one or do something or meet up and read it and read it together, I'm not going to organize it for you. You can text people. That's totally fine. So uh, number four, um, praise the Lord wherever, whenever you can. This book is about evoking worship. It's about grasping our hearts, redirecting our heads, looking at the Lord. We have put a podcast, not a podcast, a playlist, a Spotify playlist up on our website about songs that are inspired by the book of Revelation. And I think if the whole point of this is like you get the black, eye, black light out and you see that God is everywhere and evil is everywhere, being mindful of that and walking in that and operating in that, praying and praising as you go about your life is actually part of how we get more out of this book is that we enchant or see with spiritual eyes our we're tempted to see as a natural world um, all around us. All right, sermon part one done. Introduction to the book. Let's all take a deep breath. All right, now I'm gonna preach Revelation one, all right? You know, gear change here, that was big picture. Can get in the weeds, all right. Revelation one, here's the big idea. Worship Jesus, see Jesus, and be served by Jesus. Let's read the text together. Revelation 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who what is and who was and who is to come. This is like why you get a mentor, right? Mentors are helpful because they've been there before. Jesus Christ is like the ultimate mentor. He's not just been there before, but he is there right now. Jesus has not just been to the future and coming back to tell us about it. He is in the future. He's in the past. He's outside of time. Would you not want to give your heart to this person who has not just been to the future but exists outside of time and is present in the whole world? What perspective, what insight, what awesome opportunity to fellowship with and hear from and listen to the one who has not just been there, done that, but who is there and is doing that. The one who was, who is, and who is to come and from the seven spirits are at his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. There are many people who claim to witness to you to tell you about the purpose and meaning of life, to tell you about God, to tell you about what the hope and goal of the world is. And Jesus Christ is the only faithful one, the only revealer of reality, the only true prophet who has absolutely shown us the character of God. Why would you go somewhere else when you can go to him, the firstborn from the dead? Why would you be afraid of death when the one who conquers death is here and now speaking to us, the ruler of kings on earth. He is not just a talking head, not just an authority figure, not just an elected official, but he's the ruler of all these things. Look at him, see him, appreciate him. And it says, to him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood, amen, and made us a kingdom, a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, saying that promise I made to Abraham that I would make you into a kingdom of priests, that we now, the church, are that kingdom of priests, that he has not just saved us, but he's given us meaning and purpose and dignity and value and called us to this great purpose, and he is our our leader uh, to this God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory could be understood as gravitas or weight, the arresting power, the person in the room that when, when they walk in, all eyes go to them. I was at this camp this, this past week and there's a famous person's kid at the camp two years ago. That person was not at the camp this year and the camp this year was a better experience because people listened to me and they weren't just like, oh, famous person's kid, famous person's kid. And that person was gone and it changed the entire environment. And it's just like if when we believe that the Lord Jesus is present with us in the room, he is the one that arrests our attention. He's the one that captivates our eyes. He's the one that draws our attention and helps everything else fade out. He is the sobering, centering, glorious one. And to him, we should give our glory and dominion forever, that he is the ruler of all things. See, worship is all about value. What you value, you worship. What you care about, what you're preoccupied with. And this book is beginning saying everything else you're tempted to value. I'm not saying it's not value, valuable. I'm saying it is way less valuable than Jesus. Worship him. The best of you, give to him. The most focused part of your day, give to him. The most important things about you, dedicate, consecrate to him. You are tempted to give worth to other things, to fall down before other things, but instead of doing that, behold Christ and worship him. A centerpiece of this book is worship, that we would worship Christ, and it begins right here. To him is glory and dominion forever. Next, we're invited to see Jesus. So before I read the description of Jesus in Revelation, I actually want to go back and see what John is alluding to and referring to here, right? So in the book of Daniel, about a couple thousand years before Jesus-ish, he's given this series of visions. One vision he has is of the Ancient of Days, God. Another vision he has is of the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one who's coming. And here's what Daniel says. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. So this is like describing its wisdom. He's, he's the wisest person. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. He's all-consuming. He's majestic. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And behold... So now we're going to pivot to the vision of the Son of Man. First one was Ancient of Days, vision of God, now the Son of Man. Um, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So two visions in Daniel. In the book of Revelation, we see this. Verse seven, behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Verse nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the kingdom, 
partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and this patient endurance that are on account of Jesus, the word of God and testament of Jesus. I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in this book. So John hears a voice, and then he turns his head and he sees. And that is how, very often how we come to faith. We hear about Christ, and then we behold him, and we love him, and so we convert him, and we walk in faith and repentance. We hear, and then we see. And it says, verse 12, And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and in turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them, one like a son of man, direct quote from Daniel 7, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire, feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. This picture is given as like a mix of Gandalf and Aslan coming together. But what it actually is, is a picture of Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days, and the Messiah in one. That Jesus is truly God and truly man. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, and he's really entered into history. That Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. He's the Ancient of Days. He is the one like the Son of Man. He's the Lord and he's the Messiah. He's both of these things. Look at him and behold him and be moved by him. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp sword, two-edged sword. So uh, the Bible is described as a double-edged sword. And here, and, and the Bible is a double-edged sword in the book of Hebrews. And here Christ speaks God's word. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. If you want to kind of go look at the sun later, you can see how unpleasant that is. The sun shining in full strength. So John hears, he turns, he sees, and the sun is hitting him in the eyes. And he sees these pictures. And John had probably read Daniel before. He's a good Jewish boy. He understood what this was. And he sees this combination of two images that he sees the God-man. The one who is dead but is alive forevermore. He's taken captive. He's, a, he's arrested. And he sees the picture. And what, what John's inviting us to is like, see with the eyes of your heart what I've seen. Behold it. Be taken by it. The hostile takeover of a great image. This is meant to be like, if you're watching a good movie, you don't have to nudge your neighbor and say, pay attention to this part. It just takes you there. When you're listening to a really good song that is describing something and moving you at the same time, you don't have to say, oh, listen to verse three. It's really, you, no, you just, it, it, and you're, there's an enrapturing, an arresting, a taking. And when you see Christ truly, that's what it's like. It's not like, hey, keep looking. It's just you can't look away. It's like if you're watching NASCAR and there's a wreck, you can't look away. You can look away at the other parts, but not at that part. It, it holds you. And John is saying, look with me into the blazing son of God who has a face like the raging sun, and it hurts. Revelation is, first and foremost, a revelation of Jesus Christ. We're called to see him, to behold him, and in seeing him, to become attached to him, and to love him, and to fall more in love with him. And what does this person do? So now we're going to talk about being served by Jesus. This is my last point. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Awful is the word here. Like full of awe. Awful. Terrible. Terrifying. I heard many, well, if I just saw God, then I'm like, maybe you don't want to do that. Like when Isaiah sees God, he cringes and says, he's, he, like his first thought is, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. It's, it's like this, this x-ray just goes right through you and you see all of the sin and all of the, un, all of the unworthiness and it's, and it's 
perfect and majestic and it's, and it's awkward and it's shameful and you, you turn away and John says, I fell down as though dead. Now like slow down and just imagine this to me. So imagine someone was on their face right here as though dead. And so John, he sees this picture of Jesus and he holds these stars in his hands. But then what it says is that he laid his right hand on me. Now, Jesus is all powerful, but he's never described as like Captain Stretchy Arms, whatever that person, you know, like he, he had, like for Jesus to put his hand on someone on the ground, he's got to kneel down, stoop down, get on his knees and touch. That he comes down to our level that when we're most embarrassed, most terrified, most afraid, most, he reaches out his hand, he laid his right hand on me and says, fear not. That the first direct address we get of Christ, the first direct action we get of Christ is that he is resurrected, conquering, alive forevermore, and still serving sinners like you and me. And still kneeling down, stooping down to assure afraid people. When he says fear not, he's not rebuking. How could you be afraid? He's saying, I'm here. You don't need to fear me. It's, it's normal and natural to fear me. And he's saying, fear not. This is not a shameful rebuke of emotions. This is not a, a, just a, a harsh correction. This is the hand of a loving servant who has washed feet before is willing to do it again. And it is awkward to feel served, period. Nobody likes it. And people who do like it probably should like it less. <laughs> You're unworthy. Who am I? Why are you, what, you know, we're pretty, especially like as you kind of get a little more financially okay as a, as a culture, there's like this, I'd rather hire someone to do that than let a loved one do it for me, you know, type thing. Like, because it feels awkward. Like, we like to be self-sufficient. And, and here you have Christ, the first picture. Like, when he's going, I'm going to show up to John. And he's planning this out on purpose. What do I want the first taste of the resin Christ to be? Because the church is like, where's Jesus? He's like, I'm here. I'm alive forevermore. I'm in the midst of the church. And what am I doing? I'm holding the church. This, it says here in verse um. 29, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the churches, that Christ is holding the church. So don't be worried about the churches. I got them, I'm holding them. I'll speak to them in a minute. And he's holding the churches and he's comforting the individuals in the churches. That when Jesus is setting the tone through John about what's going on in the book of Revelation, he's like, just remember, this is the first picture. This is the first image that Jesus still kneels to assure us, to comfort us, and to bring us closer to himself. And so Revelation, more than being a book that's all about predicting the future or playing speculative guessing games about what's gonna happen next, it's primarily a book about how is Christ gonna meet with us in the midst of all that's gonna go on, good and bad. And so for us, as Redemption Church Gateway, Christ is serving us. He's reaching out to us. He's placing his hand on our shoulder. He's saying, fear not. He's saying, worship me. He's saying, don't be concerned about the future because I am there. I'm controlling it just like I'm controlling the present. Be with me in it. Let's thank the Lord together. Lord Jesus, thank you 
for showing us yourself through John's words in Revelation. God, I pray that our hearts will be stirred, our affections will be uh, lifted up, that we would love rightly. God, I pray as we come to this book, we would not just look for information, but we look to have our, our hearts stirred, that we might love you more intimately and more meaningfully and more closely, and that we would be truly faithful to you as we follow you to the end. In your name we pray.